Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Five Tool Deal Podcast. I'm JR. And I'm Paretsky. Two consultants looking to make business news exciting and digestible for anyone interested in staying up to date on mergers and acquisitions or M&A. Often with the help of sports references, metaphors, and analogies. For those that might not be familiar, M&A is essentially the free agency and trading block of the business world. This week, we'll discuss MGM Studios and Victoria's Secret, both likely to be acquired in large part because they were not able to adapt to changing consumer trends and shifting industry landscapes. Some might even say they're now sitting next to each other on the struggle bus. In between those two deals, we'll talk about two thriving brands coming together, fast casual salad chain Chopped and burrito chain Dos Toros. Given that it's Super Bowl Sunday, before we give our own opinions on these deals, let's predict what Andy Reid, head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, might say. Well, movies are overrated. Everyone I know only watches sports. Sell. Oh, I definitely don't fit into any Victoria's Secret clothes. Sell. I love burritos, but getting bought by a salad chain? Bunch of sellouts. Sell, sell, sell. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. first deal we're covering this week is MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, potentially getting acquired. Let's talk about MGM. So who is MGM? Well, it's the movie and TV production company, uh, the one of the world's oldest film studios. It was actually founded way back in 1924. Whoa. Their headquarters are Beverly Hills, classic California. Uh, they own the right to James Bond, Rocky, and recently the new boxing upbringing is the Creed franchise. Uh, They also own some of the TV shows that are pretty well known. The Handmaid's Tale, don't know it too well, but I know they've won a lot of awards recently, as well as one of my favorites and was a a fan favorite in our, our house in college, Live PD. It's a good classic reality police TV show that frequently it actually became the most frequently watched show on cable TV. Uh, right, it's aired on A and E, which is really interesting. But it's it's a good show to just turn on the TV when you're bored, and <laughs> a lot of interesting stuff is happening around the world. Well, I'll have to check that out, Jr. Sounds like a, an interesting show. But MGM had revenue of just upwards of a billion dollars in 2017, which was an increase from the previous year, but. Overall, they've really been struggling financially for the last 10 plus years now, where in 2010, they actually had to file for bankruptcy. And I think really the story of MGM and their financial struggles is about a changing movie and TV industry where they did not really effectively adapt quickly to new trends, specifically most recently the rise of streaming, but also potentially some some trends longer ago that maybe were changing in the industry and which they they didn't effectively prepare for. Right. 
Right. The MGM is a pretty well-known name. I mean, if for anyone in Vegas, everyone knows MGM Grand, right? The famous place. <laughs> so that's under MGM Resorts International, which is that Las Vegas-based hotel and casino company. It's actually listed on New York Stock Exchange. Um, but that was that was a created as a division of Metro Goldwyn Mayweather, which is MGM's uh, Mayweather, <laughs> like Floyd Mayweather? <laughs> Mayor, yeah, Mayor, <laughs> Mayor, my apologies. Um, but that company was spun off in 1979, which was basically because it was realizing its its downward spin of profitability and they just weren't seeing the, the returns that they were once seeing when they were the big time MGM studios that they kind of came up to be and, and made the big brand in Hollywood, hmm. uh, you know, end of the movie. So let's talk a little bit about why MGM might want to be required and why they would be likely acquired or attractive to some other people. Yeah, absolutely. So today, the TV and movie industry is really dominated by the big six global media companies. That's going to be Apple, Amazon, AT&T, which owns HBO. Comcast, which also owns NBC and their new streaming service that they're launching, Peacock, Disney, which recently launched Disney Plus, but also owns Hulu, and Netflix. So what's really interesting there is that you have a kind of a hodgepodge of companies where you have some of the biggest names in tech, these trillion dollar companies in the case of Amazon, at least today it is, and Apple, which is very close, these massive tech companies that have kind of gotten into subscription streaming as a side service and as a side business that they're offering. You've got these legacy media cable companies, AT&T, Comcast, et cetera, uh, Disney, and then you've got, of course, Netflix, who's really the big disruptor, which has been very impactful in the space, but doesn't have the same storied history as these, these other brands. Right, and I think it's really interesting to see these other smaller players, um, right, where you know we see the consolidation, but the smaller players are Viacom, CBS, and Discovery, which are more at the similar size to an MGM Studios at, at this point in time. They're potentially big enough to hang around and stay relevant or profitable, but they're losing out on it. They're just, they're too small to be, uh, compete effectively with some of these bigger players that have a absurdly amount of money to then go out and spend and continue to grow. Whereas these guys are at the, almost at this point with, you know, with the big six, just trying to stay alive. Um, they seem like the, the small fish <laughs> in the pond at this point. Yeah. So they're struggling to keep uh, compete on their own, but we see the big six strategy that one, the transition from linear cable to TV to streaming service is it's one. It's really expensive, right? That's why it's so much money to grow. You need to acquire the premium content that's necessary to stand out, as well as just building that infrastructure in the first place. So, um, unless you have a lot of that capital and liquidity available, it's really hard to stay relevant in, in, in along with the big six. Absolutely, Jr. The second major trend I think that's really important and that really speaks to why MGM is struggling to compete on their own is that there's been major consolidation across the landscape. Disney buying Fox, Comcast acquiring Sky, AT&T purchasing Time Warner, Viacom merging with CBS. All of these things have been about growing and having the scale and the capital access, the, you know, and by that I mean access to money, essentially, to be able to invest in launching new streaming platforms, in acquiring customers and bringing them to your platform in maybe moving someone from a Netflix, which they've had for a while, to a new streaming platform. 
And so they've been spending big in order to do that. And this is very similar to the ability of big players in, in sports like baseball, like the, the Yankees, to really outspend the market and to continue long stretches of dominance and to not have the same periods and lulls that a smaller market team often has because of their ability to spend and be be bigger than their competition, really. Right. And we see, I mean, with baseball, right, they give these other teams, these smaller players, they try to give them an advantage with, um, you know, higher prospects or first round draft picks or whatever it might be. But it it's still not enough to be as as competitive because right. they just don't have the capital to get those big players once their right. initial contract. Is, and, you know, they get the reps to become those bigger players. They get the big contract. And now they're off the team. Absolutely. Right? They're bought by those Yankees. And so. a company like Netflix was successfully able to without having the institutional advantage of right. being a big player already to come in and really disrupt the space when people weren't weren't expecting it but generally speaking they they're the exception not the rule right the big six they're only one of them right and so what i think is really interesting is actually way back in 1971 they mgm announced that they were planning to merge with 20th century fox wow which is interesting in the, in the sense that we see fox now right they're, they're putting way more of their money into going more away from, I mean, not away from TV, I would say, that's still a big primary target, but they're really focusing on building out the gambling, right? So I think that's pretty interesting um, to see what that direction would have been had they merged and maybe they would be more invested in the movie and be a part of the streaming wars, right? So it kind of almost is like, the Bears, right? We look at the Bears where they have the quarterback. You know, we see a lot of the potential quarterbacks we could have gotten in the playoffs <laughs> this year and how poorly that, you know, we had traded up for the quarterback for Trubisky, right. right? So, and that didn't turn out too well. So yeah. it's really interesting to see what comes to fruition just based on small choices that, you know, you make a right turn instead of a left turn. Absolutely. The so, MGM-Fox merger definitely would have changed up the game. Uh, and you know today we're really in the great streaming wars, right? The big six are competing intensely for your subscription dollars. They're paying tons for marketing, trying to get you in. They're paying. Netflix is spending billions of dollars a year creating new content. Amazon paid something like seven hundred million dollars per award that they won last year. <laughs> right, right. Um, and they were saying that the more spend that they're putting into less movies is more towards the awards, right? They're putting more money into fewer movies to get better more and more and better content, right? With to win right. more awards. Rather than trying to maximize the amount of content, exactly. there has been a bit of a shift for not maximizing the, the amount of content in the catalog, but actually being able to to have the premium content that is going to drive someone to to subscribe to your service. Right, exactly. So let's get back to it, right? The MGM, they're up for, they're looking for a buyer. Why? So which of the following big six might acquire a company like MGM? Well, we can't say for sure. I mean, we've seen some locker room talk with Apple and Netflix, I think, are the only two I've seen have some headliners of having had initial talks with MGM. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about... Yeah, who do you think it's going to be, JR? For me, personally, I think it's going to be a little bit of a mix of both, right? What is MGM known for? What's their value? Their value is the rights of characters and movie rights and TV show rights. So for me, personal use of Apple, I love having movies that are on my computer readily available that I can watch on the on the plane when I'm traveling on the go. So an asset like James Bond would be a great acquisition for a company like Apple, in my opinion. But I don't think they would really value from their streaming, their new streaming service of Apple Plus, because 
I don't really use it. I don't know too many people that do. So from a TV show perspective, I'm looking for more of a TV show personally. So I think Netflix might value a little bit more from Handmaid's Tale and uh, you know the cop show. So that's that's my opinion. Interesting. Yeah, definitely a possibility if they think they can get more for their parts at different buyers that they would do that. That said, I think it's going to be Netflix. I think that Netflix is likely willing to spend the most to acquire new content. They've consistently shown that, consistently shown that they are willing to to put their their money where their mouth is and to try and bring in these these big ticket items into their own rights. And the other really interesting element of this is that while a big part of the value is these really valuable legacy content pieces and franchises, MGM is still a high-end production studio, and they're still able to churn out new content, which I think Netflix is likely going to value more as a full bundle than Apple and Netflix might individually the sum of their parts. So I think the whole thing is going to Netflix, but I'm really rooting for Disney, even though I haven't heard their name hot thrown take, in the ring hot, much yet. Hot take. So ever since I was a kid, I used to dream about a spy world amusement park where I'd be able to go and wow. be a spy, try and catch some international villains. And I envisioned myself with like a, a little gun sliding under a door that's about to close, trying to get into a, uh, no, I completely <laughs> a secret agree. facility. I completely agree. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of these companies, they're, they're also monetizing their characters, right? They're using the rights of some of these characters to monetize it beyond just the show or the movie itself, right? We see the, 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 the Star Wars park now. You know, my one of my fondest memories as a kid was the Buzz Lightyear ride uh, down in Disney World where, you know, you had that little gun and you're going through a little car and you're shooting all those you know little aliens that would that was fun and i could totally see them doing something like that with a james bond rights um maybe a potential police chase or something like that but they've done a great job at monetizing it beyond the tv show and make it more of a brick and mortar straight you know more of selling actual commercial toys and um experiences as opposed to just the content Right. Of the big six, that's definitely one of Disney's strengths outside of the actual content and watching itself. So we'll see what happens. Who knows how it's going to shake out. All right. For the second deal we are covering this week, it is Chopped, the salad company buying Dos Toros Taqueria to form a new holding company overseeing them both called Founders Table Restaurant Group, JR. Tell us a little about Dos Toros. I would be happy to. Dos, to Dos Toros, which is founded by the brothers Leo and Oliver Kramer back in 2009, basically wanted to bring better quality mission-style burritos to their adopted new home of New York City. Uh, for those that don't know, mission-style burrito, I, I didn't know until I looked it up, but it's just a district in San Francisco, which apparently is just a one-off shop of, of how they create burritos. And uh, they weren't lacking that that same taste and and quality of food in new york so that's what they wanted to bring so they did that and launched in new york and since expanded to 21 locations in in new york new jersey and chicago their revenue is is up to 60 million in 2009 so pretty successful they, 2019 19, living 19. in the past a little jr <laughs> i had their uh, founding <laughs> date in my head to catch. um but they're using 
I think what's interesting is they're using the Chipotle model as a template in the sense that they are not planning to franchise, which I think is pretty interesting. And, you know, not only taking into a little bit of their shadow as, as Chipotle is one of their competitors with, uh, with burritos, but that's, that's, that was a key noteworthy point to me. Yeah, totally. I think it's really important for people who might not understand one of the key divides between how restaurant companies are run is whether they use a franchise model or not. And so how essentially that works is with a regular model or a non-franchise model, you have restaurants owning all of their locations. So Chipotle owns every single one of their locations and manages them all of them themselves. With a franchise model, the restaurant chain, so Chick-fil-A, for example, use a franchise model, they own the brand Chick-fil-A, but they individual stores are owned by individual people or by smaller companies that own a subset or a number of those locations. And Chick-fil-A nationals will provide some shared services to each brand and they take a cut of all of the profits mm -hmm. that each location makes, but they don't actually own all of the physical stores and they have these separate ownership groups that operate each of them. Right. I think that was a great description. And, and the decision making, right, is also separated as well. Yeah. And both of these joints, Chipotle and Dos Toros, are considered fast, casual Mexican, which is a lot what a lot of consumers are saying that Dos Toros is actually better than Chipotle and claiming it to be the Chipotle Slayer as <laughs> undeniably woven into their identity as well as being a little bit cheaper. Maybe some might even say healthier in some respects, um, but they're still definitely in Chipotle's shadow. I mean, looking at Chipotle, 5.5 billion in sales. It's, it's no question that they are not even close to Chipotle's level. However, it is interesting to note that they are, you know, so successful in these major, major cities within the US and taking on some consumers that are are, are knowing them as the better quality, better option uh, that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. Doing some quick math. Sounds like Chipotle is about 110 times bigger than Dos Toros in terms of revenue, 5.5 <laughs> billion to 60 million roughly, rounding that 60 million down to 50. But Dos Toros has, has two differentiators that uh, we really see and think make them a threat to Chipotle in the future, especially as they continue to expand. First, they have been doing a really good job of bringing that same great taste burrito, but with healthier alternatives. For example, a farro Italian grain rather than rice. And number two, and, and my personal favorite, and the thing that for me makes Dos Toros better than Chipotle. No bias, no bias. <laughs> I'm not, not biased though. <laughs> is that they melt a slab of cheese onto the burrito before filling it up. And when I first encountered Dos Toros, when I was an intern living in New York City actually, we used to go there, my roommate Ryan and I, every, every week we went at least two or three times. Wow. Without fail. And wow. once I learned that you could get two slabs of cheese melted onto your burrito if you asked, I was doing that every single time. <laughs> I'm gonna have to try that. I have yet to try it. I know I'm a fan of the cheese, but I have never double stacked it. <laughs> yeah, a little pro tip for, for you all out there. But JR, tell us a little bit about the other 
restaurant organization in this deal. What's the deal with Chopped? Yeah, Chopped is the owner and operator of a fast casual restaurant chain specializing in salads. So basically, this salad company uses a variety of ingredients that are are often natural and humanly raised. So whether that be cage-free chickens, heirloom lettuce, which means it's grown <laughs> in a farm. I've never seen uh, heirloom been used as a term for anything other than tomatoes. But after looking it up, it just basically means that it's not grown at a scale or commercial level. It's more in the, you know, farm, um, you know, little garden-esque type of that, that, that approach, which I think is really cool that they're supporting that and farm fresh vegetables. So that was founded back in 2001 by Tony Schur and Colin McCabe, who remained as the hands-on managers who gave the company um, and brought it up to 66 restaurants in 10 states. So they also said that the average restaurant is about two to three million in annual revenue. So if we do a little quick math there, the 66 you know, restaurants um, times the, you know, given an average of 2.5 million, we get to about $165 million in annual revenue for Chopped as a company. Wow, um, we're really showing off our math <laughs> skills on this one. Yeah, but tell, tell us a little bit. So we got the two, two, two companies coming together under this new uh, parent company called the Founders Table Restaurant Group. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this new holding company is backed by private equity giant L. Catterton. For more info on how private equity works, stay tuned for our third deal. But the CEO of this new organization, Founders Table, is going to be the CEO, former CEO of Chopped. And their focus is really on creating, acquiring, and growing innovative, founder-led, line-out-the-door, popular restaurant companies. And that, that is kind of the focus here, but that leads really nicely into why are these two groups combining and what are going to be the benefits that they hope they can capitalize on as a joint entity rather than as separate brands. Right. Right. And I think we can talk a little bit about why they're doing this. Right. And one of the biggest things is the consumer trends and overall market growth of this fast, casual, healthy option. Right. We're seeing that become a massive trend in the last decade uh, where the office crowd is looking for a quick but relatively healthy lunch, uh, a part of the expensive salad chain boom. Um, so we see sweet greens and tender greens as very popular options that are now in places like, I mean, our experience with the loop, right? We see them everywhere. I think that's pretty much uh, a super common place for most people to just walk to and it's swept the city. Everyone's going there and they're worried about quant quality, not quantity of stores, which I think is, is the same approach that these two companies are trying to take and where the parent company is trying to support. Absolutely. So we see in the past since from 2012 through 2016, which is, you know, a couple of years ago, but it's grown since then. But we saw a statistic that it grew at an impressive rate of an annual growth rate of 11.3%, which is about six times more than the annual GDP, which is just a noteworthy point. And I think it's actually increased since then. Um, but that's not the only reason why they're, they're, this is happening, right? No, absolutely not. I think thing number two is really that there, this is a customer acquisition and retention play. By rolling up the brands, they're planning to launch a new loyalty program that incentivizes customers from each of the brands not only to return and continue going back to Dos Toros or continue going back to Chopped, but actually to 
convert customers of one brand to the other. Personally, I am primarily a Dos Toros consumer, but if all of a sudden I get discounts because of my Dos Toros consumption at Chopped, I'm more likely to go there than mm, to another salad like brand. Su- like Sweet Greens, for example, right? You're going to go to a Chopped location as opposed to Sweet Greens. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I think we can also talk about the operational synergies, right? I mean, that's a term that's a little a little consulting-esque, but... Um, <laughs> Basically, this holding company is now going to be able to invest their time and money in building the digital tools as a kind of shared service function that will help them grow uh, and continue the success of the brands while letting the founders still run their brands and focus the creating the high quality dining experience at each of their locations. Absolutely. And when we think about synergies, it's a, it's a very buzzy, buzzword type term that gets made fun of in TV shows from time <laughs> to time. But really what that means is that there are functions that both organizations need to perform and they can either have both of them done individually or they can save time and money by doing those functions together. So one example of that would be, for example, the FC Barcelona organization, mm-hmm. most famously known for owning the soccer team yeah. in Barcelona with Lionel Messi, also owns Barcelona's premier basketball team, oh, as wow. well as Barcelona's premier handball team. <laughs> <laughs> handball, handball, great sport. Absolutely, very fun. Loved that in gym class. Loved, loved it at summer camp. I actually loved watching in the Olympics last year. It was actually a blast. That's a real deal. Right, and so... Those organizations actually share a website and they can share administrative functions like payroll. And so that saves them money and brings down the cost of running each of the teams. And so a similar concept is being applied here where Chopped and Dos Toros can share some of these functions and bring down the costs for both of them. Exactly. No, I think you summed it up pretty well. All right, let's give a quick recap of of why this deal is happening and what they're trying to take advantage of. This deal is happening for three primary reasons. One, consumer trends are favoring fast, casual, and healthy. Two, the benefits of customer acquisition and retention by launching a joint loyalty program is a great opportunity. And three, operational synergies will let both brands run more efficiently and hopefully be more successful in the future. So consumer trends, the loyalty program, and operational synergies. Awesome. Okay, the third deal we are covering this week is L Brands, likely to sell Victoria's Secret to a private equity firm named Sycamore Partners. JR, for those who are not familiar, would you give a brief description of PE or private equity? I would be happy to. Well, private equity is basically an entity that pulls money from a bunch of investors and uses that money to buy more companies and then try and flip them. It's common like flipping houses, right? So what they do is they pull a bunch of money together, buy a company for a hundred bucks, for example, and then sell it or turn around and sell it for 200 bucks several years later. You know, the strategy and timeline for how they get to this company, how they get it to $200 is what varies, but um, they're all just trying to get to the same place and just double the value or, you know, get to a much more valuable place. And it's kind of like a team focusing more on their defense versus their offense. There's a lot of different strategies that some of these PE houses might have, um, but they all have the same goal in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So bringing us back to, to L Brands and Victoria's Secret, 
L Brands is a publicly traded holding company that owns a number of fashion and retail brands. Specifically, they own Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works, and Pink. I am pretty familiar with Bath and Body Works just from my Christmas and mother's birthday shopping, so I'm, I'm, I know that well. <laughs> and then Victoria's Secret uh, is very well known, but they're a designer and manuf- manufacturer and marketer of women's lingerie women's wear and beauty products with about $7 billion in annual sales. So they're a large, large company, large brand, really prominent. And even if you've never purchased from them and never have tried their products, you're probably familiar. (laughs) I can tell you that for me as a teenager walking through malls, I was very familiar with the brand and definitely enjoyed walking by the store, even though I never went inside. Yeah, you're probably pretty familiar with their uh, material, aren't you? (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Uh, JR, why is L Brands selling Victoria's Secret? Yeah, so there's a couple different speculations here, but I think one of the biggest ones is that they're separating their portfolio from growing brands to declining ones, right? They have a bunch of companies in their portfolio, and some of them are growing much better than others. In this case, we see Bath and Body Works, for example, that's killing it. They're doing a phenomenal job. They're growing rapidly. And they've got other companies like Victoria's Secret who are kind of digging themselves out of a hole. And the management strategy for different companies whether in regards to whether or not they're growing or declining is very different, right? How they do operational changes, cost cutting and whatnot, that's going to vary very widely between the two. Yeah, absolutely. If you're trying to, to manage a brand that's performing quickly and growing fast while simultaneously trying to manage a brand that is de- struggling and declining, the different styles and strategies required to maximize the value of each, you might not be able to do that effectively if you own both. And Victoria's Secret really has been declining. They've struggled alongside a lot of other brick and mortar businesses, all of these physical store retail brands that were very popular when we were kids, but that now with direct to consumer online brands stealing a lot of share, they they are really struggling. And the other piece for Victoria's Secret is that their design and sizes have always generally been geared towards models and didn't necessarily capture the needs of large pockets of the population. And so their their inability to effectively adapt to these trends has caused their value to decrease a lot. So it's really been a bad season for the whole Brady family, <laughs> with the Patriots being upset in the first round of the playoffs, and Giselle, who started her company and rose to fame as a Victoria's Secret model, her her company in that in that regard is uh, is really struggling. No, I love I love that analogy. It's really really applicable here. Yeah. So their shareholders are advocating that there could be you know better performance and increased shareholder value by separating the brands between growing and those that are declining. So yeah. they're trying to separate. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a little bit like if a sports team is trying to to win, right? That's what they want to do. In this case, maximize shareholder value, but. For a sports team to win, it's really hard to do that if you're kind of a middle-of-the-pack organization to then all of a sudden become an organization that is talented enough to win it all. And the strategy as that type of company that's kind of straddling that middle ground, as we were saying earlier, really is to fully focus on rebuilding Mm. with a brand like Victoria's Secret and trying to win it all now and let the the growing brand that's performing well thrive on its own and succeed separately. 
Right, because it's kind of hard for someone in the middle of the pack to kind of push their way through to the top, right? Because it's, you know, they kind of plateau almost, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of brand separation, the other uh, element here is that Leslie Wexner, who is the owner and founder of L Brands, has gotten into a bit of trouble recently. Yeah, he's he's uh, been called out quite a few times, and I think he's being called out finally for his departure. Um, kind of similar to Donald Sterling, who, for those that don't know, is the, was the previous Clippers owner that got lots of people uh, to basically bound up, and he had a couple of racist comments and got kicked out of the NBA. He was forced to sell his team because of a couple of racist comments. And I think Welksner having, you know, stayed true to this Victoria's Secret brand, I guess, and some of the body image stuff, it, it's been a little controversial on some of his opinions with, in regard to that. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, you know, he is the longest standing CEO of any S&P 500 company, which is incredible. But I think that he's getting in a little, little trouble um, from yeah. his perspective. It, it, he's, and that's not the only thing, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. He his trouble extends beyond some some comments that he's made that haven't been great. He's been connected to Jeffrey Epstein, mm. who has been managing his money for 20, 30 years or something like that, uh, which has come under increased scrutiny now what the exact nature of their relationship is. Right. And, and and I think people also just believe that an 80-year-old man is not the best person to be running a woman's fashion brand. I mean, I think that's pretty pretty easy to uh, to get on board with. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. But when you're the person who founded that company and has been there since 1963, you can see his reluctance to step away from the business. But that's what shareholders are calling for. And it's looking like there's increasing pressure building and that mm-hmm. that likely is going to happen in the near future. Right. Right. Let's get back to where we uh, where we started. So let's talk a little bit more. Why is Sycamore buying Victoria's Secret? Yeah, absolutely. Sycamore specializes in retail investments, especially struggling retail. That is how they create value for their investors is by investing in and buying these struggling retail companies and turning them around and flipping them for a profit. So, for example, Sycamore owns Staples and Hot Topic. So that kind of gives you some some exposure to how they have experience with other struggling retailers that maybe were prominent back in the day but aren't doing quite as well recently and they believe that they can make victoria's secret more valuable probably by cutting costs to rebuild the company's profits and eventually selling the company or bringing it to an initial public offering and making it stock available to trade in order to earn more than they paid. Right, so long story short, Sycamore is buying this company because they've been there before, they know what to do, and it's not LL Brands' uh, forte to really work with declining brands, right? They're more, uh, their strategy and approach goes towards growing brands, and Sycamore is, this is more their niche, and that's why they, they take attraction to this. Absolutely, guys, that's, that's our third deal for the day. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. If you liked the episode, rate us five stars. If you didn't like it, definitely do not rate us, but email us at the number five tool deal at gmail.com. That's the number five tool deal at gmail.com. The number five tool deal <laughs> at gmail.com. Until next time. See ya.